0: Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. Kevin Randall with us. Kevin, let's talk again about the Leveland case, and then we'll move on to some others. Uh, that, that was a fascinating case, wasn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely. And one of the things I wanted to make clear is, uh, you know, as I said, Don Burlinson had talked to the wife and the uh, daughter of the sheriff And he'd gotten much closer. But what was interesting about it, Don talked to the mechanic for the police department, and he mentioned that the day after the sightings, where the cars were stalled, the headlights were dimmed, the sheriff brought his car in and wanted it completely checked. And I'm thinking, well, if he didn't get close enough enough to see it and stall his car, why would he want the uh, car checked? It's just a subtle way of confirming that the sheriff got very close, and he observed the same sort of phenomenon that others had reported to the sheriff's office and that was one of the things you, you can bring into uh, an investigation long after the the situation is over uh, and we were able to corroborate that also the description of the overshaped shaped object i found references in newspapers the sheriff had talked to reporters prior to the air force getting there and that was where he was mentioning the oval-shaped object. So we were able to find evidence, contemporary evidence, that suggests that the sheriff got very close to the thing. And that makes the case even better, because you have law enforcement involved, you have all these other people involved seeing the same thing and having the same phenomenon uh, that they that they observed.
0: And you know, Paul Heineke told me that his father's mind about UFOs changed during the Lonnie Zamora case in Socorro, New Mexico, the police officer who saw that you know egg-shaped object on the side of the road—I
1: think that was one of the things that really bothered uh, Alan Hynek because here was a reputable source. There was physical evidence left behind, and and again, by going through the files, um, you were able to learn things. It has been reported that the Lonnie Zamora case was um, problematic because it was single witness. Only Lonnie Zamora saw it. But there was a report written that very night by Captain Richard Holder. He had, was an Army officer assigned to White Sands. His duty station happened to be closer to Socorro than it was to Alamogordo. So he was involved within minutes of the sighting, along with an FBI agent, and they interrogated Lonnie Zamora. The holder that very night wrote a report that he sent off to the Pentagon. I think he actually called it into the Pentagon, and he reported that uh, the police had received three phone calls prior to Lonnie Zamora seeing anything about something in the sky. So wow. now we've got now we've got a bit of evidence that comes out of the Project Blue Book files that nobody really talked about, um, with there being a possibility of other witnesses. And nobody bothered to follow up on that. I mean, Socorro was small enough in that time frame and you knew the flight path. You could have gone and knocked on doors and maybe found those witnesses because the police didn't bother to write the names down. Because You're talking about something bizarre seen in the sky and nobody cared about it until Lonnie Zamora made his report of the landed craft. So you've got additional witnesses. You've got uh, physical evidence left behind by the object when it left it off. And Hector Quintanella, who was the... Uh, Air Force investigator Project Blue Book, the chief of Project Blue Book at the time, uh, investigated it in depth. He went to New Mexico. He had documentation that he is cleared for any classified projects you have. Tell him what you know, trying to find a solution for what Lonnie Zamora found, and he couldn't do it. And he wrote in his own memoirs that he figured that. Um, Lonnie Zamora may, may have known something more unconsciously that would have explained the case, but he couldn't find it and he labeled it as unidentified. And so you have a case where the object is seen on the ground, it leaves landing traces, occupants, creatures from inside are seen, and the Air Force labeled it as unidentified. One of, I think, three cases in the Project Blue Book files where they see the creatures and it's labeled as unidentified. Most cases, if you saw or reported that you'd seen alien creatures, well, then it was you were written off as a psychological problem. You were deluded in some fashion. But here was a case where Zamora reported that, and the um, Air Force could not find an explanation for it and wrote it as unidentified.
0: And, Kevin, I've got to tell you, I mean, the Zamora case happened in 1964, five years before we landed on the moon. But we had been testing the lunar module LEMS in the desert, and I thought when I heard this story, oh, they are two astronauts, they're testing the LEM. And, then, and this police officer saw that. I thought that for a while. What, what would you think?
1: The problem with that is they didn't have a flying model of it in New Mexico. What they were doing in New Mexico at White Sands, testing the, the lander, they were using a helicopter to lift the thing off the ground. Lonnie Zamora didn't see any helicopter. He would have heard the helicopter. Uh, he didn't see anything like that. There was no evidence, we could find no evidence, and I say we, many, many people have investigated, including the skeptical community, and they could not find any documentation of a flight of the lunar lander in that area at that time that would explain the case. So that explanation was well-researched, but it just wasn't borne out, so we're left with a case where Lonnie Zamora saw something very strange. The next day in La Madeira, New Mexico, there was another landing, and Heineck, he was, uh, the, the Socorro case took place on a Friday. He was in New Mexico on Tuesday. The, the La Lod- Madera case takes place on a Saturday. He wanted to go there to investigate and in Force said, no, you can't, no, you don't, don't do that, come on back. I'm thinking if was Heineck, I'd have gone up there anyway to look at it. But here's another good case, the Air Force wrote it off as um, debris burning in a dump is what the guy had seen, but that's a preposterous explanation. But if you've got those two cases that close together, then that suggests something else is going on, something more mysterious than misidentification of a fire in a dump.
0: Absolutely. We're with Kevin Randall. His book is called The Best of Project Blue Book. We'll be taking calls with Kevin next hour here on Coast to Coast. What other issues were in the, the Project Blue Book case that caught your eye?
1: Oh, there's, there's just so many things. The um, Washington National sightings from 1952, the radar sightings. You've got radar at three separate locations at one point showing the object, so it can't be some kind of a phenomenon, uh, a malfunction of what radar and you, it, it, it removes the idea of a weather-related phenomenon because the three radars are showing the same thing in a weather-related phenomenon.
0: And a great picture hit the newspapers.
1: Oh, absolutely. But I was able to talk to two of the guys who were in the radar room on the second night of the sightings, uh, Dewey Fournet and Al Chop. Al Chop was the Pentagon spokesman, and Dewey Fournay was the Pentagon liaison to Project Blue Book. And I talked to both of them about that, that sighting and neither one knew what was going, I mean, it was nothing they could explain. They were there, they knew what happened, and I think it was Al Chop told me, he said, we got really hairy once, and I said, well, what, uh, what's that about? He said, well, I really can't tell you. So I was talking to Dewey Fournay sometime later, and I said, you know, Al Chop was telling me about this really hairy sighting, and, he's, and, F- and Fournay says, yeah, the plane got really close to the object and was surrounded by the light, so he told me Whoa. what the hairy situation was because he thought I already knew what it was. But it, it kind of shows that uh, information was left out of the newspapers, was left out of the reporting at the time, and it's part of it's because the, the Air Force was very closed-minded or closed-mouthed about what they had seen and what was going on. And um, I think reporters... In that time frame, they, they had the idea that, well, we really can't be visited by alien creatures. And so they were taking an attitude that was, I am too sophisticated to believe in these little green men flying around and flying saucers. And I think that attitude has changed as well as we get the mainstream media now looking at it with a more serious eye in, in many of the cases.
0: Yeah, is the Roswell case dead, or is it still being checked into?
1: It's still being checked into. There's, there's leads to be followed up. The problem we've run into is a lot of people claiming they were involved in it in some fashion who were not, and I think that mainly it's um, the investigators who are eliminating these people. Some of them who telling very great stories about it, and we learned that they were probably making their, their stories up. But there's a good, solid core of information there. Something clearly fell. Everybody agrees on that. I talked to Colonel Richard Weaver just a couple of weeks ago about that, uh, he is still of the opinion that it might have been the Project Mogul balloons. Uh, even when we look at the documentation that said the flight that they point to, flight number four of these array of balloons being launched in New Mexico, didn't fly it. It had been canceled. And yet they say, well, that's the one that uh, caused the, uh, the fall at, at Roswell. But I, I think that we look at it, we have to be very careful with the information that we, we accept And we have to make sure we vet the witnesses very carefully, that they're telling us the truth, they were there at the proper time, and their stories um, sort of corroborate one of another. So we've got some problematic witnesses out there. One of the best witnesses, and I think I'm the only one that ever got a chance to talk to him, was, was Colonel Edwin Easley. He was the provost marshal at Roswell. And the one thing that he made clear to me was he was not supposed to talk about this because... He had been advised by by the uh, powers to be not to talk about you, not to talk about this thing. But he, I think he wanted to help, and he would uh, tell me things that related to the Roswell case that didn't violate the oath that he took. For example, uh-huh. he told me that Mac Braslow had been held in the guest house on the base.
0: And he was the owner of the farm where the crash site occurred.
1: He was a ranch ma- manager of, of where it fell, yes, absolutely. And the other thing that he said. I'd asked him one day, are we following the right path? And he said, what do you mean? I said, we think it was extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way. It's not the wrong path. So now we've got the provost marshal, and nobody's ever said a bad word about him, uh, telling me it's basically extraterrestrial. We had General Exxon, and no, the, the, the skeptical community and the, um, the Air Force didn't really go after Exxon's testimony. Exxon told, told us things that were going on at right... Field, right, patterson Air Force Base, when this all took place, about what was being brought in and what was being seen there, and that his involvement was flying over the crash site some weeks later. So we have a general officer talking about what he'd seen that relates to this thing. So we've got very high-ranking officers who were kind of corroborating bits and pieces of this as they could. So the Roswell case, it's not as robust as it was. And I, I go in-depth in Roswell in the 21st century. I looked at it as kind of a cold case and went back and reviewed the evidence that we had. I I think there's like a 1,000 footnotes in the the book, so that it's it's well-documented about what happened. And the conclusion is, well, it's not as well-documented. It wasn't as robust as it was because some of the witnesses, some of the witnesses telling us really great stories have fallen by the wayside, But there's a solid core of witnesses who gave us enough information that leads us to the extraterrestrial. I have no explanation for what fell at Roswell. I have no terrestrial explanation. And that kind of leads us into the extraterrestrial. And for some, that's a leap they want to take. Mm -hmm. I kind of step back from that a little bit, but I still have no terrestrial explanation. So I lean toward the extraterrestrial for Roswell.
0: Kevin, Monday I interviewed Paul Blake Smith, who's convinced that the Late President Eisenhower met with e t s What do you think of that story
1: i don 't find any good evidence to support that. I know the stories have circulated. I think it was at Edwards Air Force Base he was supposed to meet with them right um, i just don't I just don 't see a lot of solid evidence and, and that doesn 't mean it didn 't happen. It just means i don 't have the evidence, so i 'm inclined to sort of discount it because we don 't have the sorts of things we have with Roswell, the number of people that would have been involved in, some of them telling us little bits and pieces about the story, I need something much more robust. There was also supposedly the, the Socorro landing in 1964. The, what Lonnie Zamora saw was a mistake. They, they, they landed in the wrong place, and they landed a couple of days later at Holloman uh, uh, Air Force Base. That's where they were supposed to land, which is south of Socorro. And I don't have huh. good evidence for that either. But there's some interesting things that relate to that. And I've, I've talked about those things in some of the other books I've done uh, about UFOs. I think in the government UFO files, I, I talk about the uh, possible landing at um, Holloman Air Force Base and the, and the evidence that uh, swirls around that.
0: The government brought in Edward Condon from the University of Colorado to investigate Project Blue Book. Was that a setup?
1: oh absolutely uh... they knew what the conclusion was going to be before they even started yeah. there's documentation for that robert Hippler, who was uh, air force officer lieutenant colonel robert Hippler, had written a letter to the county committee and says, "Here's what we'd like to find we'd like you to say some good things about the air force investigation we would like to say that there's nothing really of scientific value that that will be derived from investigating ufo's and we should stop and that there are no national security implications and lo and behold, when Condon finished his investigations, that's exactly what he concluded, those same, same things. We look at the Air Force Project Blue Book Files. There's good stuff in the files. It's just misinterpreted. And you have to read between the lines. Um, you have to look for the evidence in the files and, and look at everything that they've got in the file before you can come to, come to some of the conclusions. But one of the points is one of the staff members had a security clearance, and I don't know whether secret or top secret clearance, but this was at the time the, invest, uh, the sightings in Belt, Montana, Malmstrom Air Force Base, where it shut down the missile silos.
0: Right, they floated right over
1: them. Yep. Yeah, and shut down a whole flight of missiles. And the investigator was there, and he asked the um, UFO investigating officer, uh, a lieutenant colonel, um, and I, <laughs> I always can't remember whether his name is, Chase Lewis or Lewis Chase, huh. but asked him, asked him about it, and he said, I can't tell you, that's national security. So when the Condon Committee tells you that there's no national security implications in it, it's a a bald-faced lie because they were told flat out in this particular instance, we can't talk about certain aspects of it because of the national security implications.
0: That's amazing stuff. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.